really is a blessing to worship God with His people, to gather with His church, and to meet with Him, to worship Him, to sing songs to Him, to pray to Him, and to do all of that with the hope, with the expectation that He actually will come and that He actually will meet with us. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. As I mentioned a moment ago, we've been in a series in the book of Ephesians. This morning we're going to finish Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to consider verses 19 through 22. But I'd like to present those verses in context. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Please follow along as I read. Therefore, remember at one time... You Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And now the verses we're going to consider this morning. Verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray once again together. Our Father, we come before you once more before we consider your word and we ask that you would come again and that you would meet with us. We come to you now in the same way that these Ephesians came to you. We come to you through one spirit. We have the expectation that we here as your people are the temple of God. And your promise to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, is that you will come and inhabit your temple, that you will come and dwell among us, your church. Do that now, we pray, in keeping of your promise and your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Last week, we considered verses 11 through 18 of Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, I made the observation last week that Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 really begins sort of a transitional section in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1 and then in chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, the emphasis has all been on this great work of reconciliation that God has done in Christ for individual sinners who were formerly dead in their trespasses and sins and are then made alive together with Christ. The emphasis has been so far up to verse 10 of chapter 2 on God reconciling individual people, individual sinners, 
and including them in Christ and making them right before God and raising them up together with Him and bringing personal and individual salvation. That brings about every spiritual blessing for the believer. The blessings of adoption, the blessings of redemption, the blessings of forgiveness of sins and the seal of the Holy Spirit. And now oneness with the Lord Jesus Christ. But then beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2, and really on to chapter 4 and verse 16, a new theme is sort of opened up and expanded by the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Ephesians. And that is that this great work of reconciliation that God has begun and is perfecting in Christ extends far beyond just the personal and individual salvation of particular people. But that it actually comprehends the formation of a new community, a new humanity that is created new in Christ Jesus through what he has done on the cross. And this new community is made up of all sorts of people. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles and men and women and old and young and people in different socioeconomic demographics. And they're all made new in Christ and joined into one body. And we considered last week how those who are, are joined into this body are to be one. That they're to labor to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And all division and hostility and alienation is to have no place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We considered in verses 11 through 13. Paul begins by addressing the Gentiles. There was this big division in the early church between Jew and Gentile. And there was this hostility and alienation between these two groups. We observed last week that one of the things Paul wants to bring up again and again in his epistles is how it is that through Christ, in the new covenant, Jews and Gentiles could actually be part of the same church. These groups that were marked by alienation and hostility, now in the church they can be one through what Christ has done. And so we saw last week, verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2, that the Gentiles, who were formerly strangers to the covenants of promise, they weren't part of God's elect people, Israel. They were apart from Christ, without hope and without God in the world. Now they're included in the redemptive purposes of God, and they're brought into the church. And then in verses 14 through 15, we saw that Jesus, in his flesh, has broken down the dividing wall of hostility such that there can be no division now in Christ's church. These Gentiles who are now included, it's not that they're just to coexist alongside the Jews and find a way to get along, but both groups are actually created new in Christ, and therefore they need to be one. They need to be united through what Christ has done. And we saw in verses 16 through 18 how God has reconciled both groups to himself. That through what Christ has done, peace has been preached to those who are far off, the Gentiles, and those who are near, the Jews. They both needed peace preached to them. And they were both brought near through what Christ has done such that they now can come to God through one spirit. And I shared three lessons for us from those verses last week. The first was that community in the Christian life is not optional. Community in the Christian life is not optional. Christ, we read, by his blood, in his flesh, through his body on the cross, actually bought for himself a people. He actually bought for himself a gathering, a group of people who are to live as one in the body of Christ. And therefore, community is not optional. Christ came and on the cross accomplished a community of people who are now his and made new in Christ. And therefore, unity and being part of God's people is not optional. It's a necessity. Christ came not only to give individual personal salvation, but he also came to introduce each and every sinner into a new community, the church the new humanity, who are to live as one in Christ. And therefore, it's very good for us, brothers and sisters, 
to be part of God's church, God's family, God's household. It's good for us. It's utterly necessary for us to be part of an assembly of God's people made up of people who are maybe in no way like us except that we have Christ in common. And through what Christ has done, we can be united. In fact, Ephesians 2 says it was even by his blood that he brought the Gentiles near. It was in his flesh that he made us one, signifying that if Christ died, if he really did shed his blood on the cross, this must be accomplished. A church body that is one. And then the second lesson I shared with us is that division, therefore, has no place in the body of Christ. So we have a church made up of people from different backgrounds, uh, different uh, places, pinpoints on the social strata. We have different uh, uh, backgrounds in terms of culture and heritage and even race and, race and ethnicity. And yet Christ expects that there's not to be hostility and division over these things in his church. But that we can actually be one. In fact, he went to the cross to make it so. And therefore, we can have a body of people with completely different backgrounds from completely different places, uh, completely different interests, completely different customs, but in Christ, we're made one. The two groups are made into one new body, and therefore, there can't be division in the church. Christ, in his flesh, took alienation and division and hostility, and he kicked it out of the camp. And it has no place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there can be nothing like racism in the church. There could be nothing like division between old and young in the church. Churches made up of only young people or only older people. There cannot be churches for rich and churches for poor. But in Christ, they're all made one. And so we are to be gathered into an assembly of people from different backgrounds and different races and different uh, points on the socioeconomic scale. And in the church, we are made one. There is no superiority. There are no VIPs in the church. But through what Christ has done, there is unity and peace. And then I close with a third lesson, is that, and that is that meaningful unity can only be achieved through Christ. It's no coincidence that we see in the world, in our nation, even in our city, social unrest and social division and racial uh, clashes and class warfare. That shouldn't surprise us. Men's hearts are wicked. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're following the course of this world. We're under the dominion of Satan, but through what Christ has done in making people new and bringing them, incorporating them into the church, now unity is possible. Unity can be achieved through what Christ has done, and meaningful unity can only be achieved through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that brings us to this week, to verses 19 through 22. These are the verses we'll consider this morning. Let's read them once again together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. These Gentiles who have been included, who have been made one with the Jews in Christ, now Paul turns to address them again in verse 19. And he wants to drill into these Gentiles, into these Ephesians, their new identity, their new status in the household of God. As those who have been adopted by God and united to Christ and made into one new humanity, he wants them to understand their new identity, their new place. And he does so in our text by way of three images. 
Paul uses three images here to drill into these Ephesians their new identity in Christ, who it is that they are now. And I'd like to look at each image this morning. First of all, we're going to see that these Gentiles, they are now, first of all, citizens of the same kingdom as the Jews. They are citizens of the same kingdom. Number two, they are members of the same family. And number three, they are part of the same temple. Kingdom, family, temple. Part of a new kingdom, part of a new family, part of a new temple. Let's consider these in succession. First of all, the Jews, they are, excuse me, the Gentiles, they are citizens of the same kingdom. Look again at verse 19. So then you, presumably the Gentiles now, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Paul wants these Ephesians, especially these Gentiles, to understand, though you were formerly, he says in verse 11, separate from Christ, uh, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world, you were former strangers and aliens, but now you are citizens with the saints. Presumably citizens with all those who are God's people throughout time and throughout the world, all those who follow God. You are now fellow citizens with them. Presumably part of a new kingdom. You are fellow citizens with the saints. This is a theme that Paul brings up again and again. We see it in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20-21. through 21. No need to turn there, but he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. He says, you believers, your citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. Peter takes up this point in 1 Peter 2, verses 9-10. through He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Regardless of where you came from, you're part of a new nation now. You're part of a a new kingdom. You're part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. What Paul is in effect saying Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, when he says that these Ephesians are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints, he's saying, if you belong to Christ, if you are His, you have citizenship in this new kingdom. He's saying, I don't care what your racial background is or what your national heritage is. If you're in Christ, you have a new heritage. I don't care where you hold your citizenship. If you're in Christ, you have a new citizenship. You're a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Citizens of this new kingdom have the same Lord. They have shared allegiances. They have shared privileges. They are understood to be serving the same cause. They live by the same code of ethics. And all of this serves to create a profound sense of unity. Saying, you Gentiles, you Jews, now incorporated into one body, you share a common citizenship. Regardless of what's true about your national heritage, your racial heritage, you have a new one now in Christ. You're a new people, and you are fellow saints, fellow citizens, one with another in the kingdom of heaven. And I think that Paul makes this point because he's, again, going after this idea of oneness, this idea of a shared identity in Christ. There's no 
privileged people group here. It's not like someone has special status, but you're both citizens in this new kingdom. So by way of illustration, you can imagine uh, maybe some of you have traveled abroad. Okay? My wife and I have traveled abroad. Uh, she's much more tra- uh, well-traveled than I am. But you can imagine being in a country uh, where the primary tongue is a foreign language. And you're trying to navigate uh, travel. You're trying to find the bathroom. You're trying to uh, uh, find food or restaurant or something like that. Now we have apps that can help us with this. How do you say bathroom? And Siri will tell you, okay. But it wasn't always that way. So you, you might know what it's like to be in a foreign country and you, you don't know the language, you don't know the customs and you're trying to figure this out and, and then you see another American and you feel this, this sense of connection with this person. You're, you're from home. You're from the United States. And man, you just start talking and connecting and, and you have this sense, you know, if we were back in America, I would never stop and talk to this person. Maybe I wouldn't even like them, but it's so nice to see another American here in this foreign land. And it's so nice just to speak the same language and to talk about the same customs and share the same headlines and to talk about the same food that we love and uh, hopefully help each other find the bathroom while we're here. Um, You know what that's like. Well, there's something like that in the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, we're exiles. Our citizenship is not on this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. And profound unity is engendered and stimulated and created when we come into contact with other Christians who share our citizenship. Oh, you have the same Lord that I do. You're walking the same road that I'm walking. You're a pilgrim as well. You know what it's like. You know what it's like to experience the sort of hardship that's unique to God's people. You know what it's like to experience trial and want and to suffer through that with the Lord Jesus Christ. I know what that's like. And there's this unity that's engendered. Well, I think that's why Paul introduces this image. You Jews, you Gentiles, this shared citizenship engenders and creates a sense of solidarity, a sense of unity, a sense of community, a sense of oneness. And brothers and sisters, keep in mind that our faith is a radically political faith. Let me explain what I mean by that. I'm not necessarily saying that God saves people to be social and political activists, okay? Not that social activism and political activism is wrong. But listen, the statement, Jesus is Lord, is the most profound and meaningful political statement in human history. It's a political statement. Jesus is Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I want to press in here for a moment and just say to you, brothers and sisters, you have more in common with the man, the woman who shares with you the great political dictum, Jesus is Lord, and maybe disagrees with you on your Republican political platform or Democratic political platform, you have more unity with that brother or sister than you do with someone who is outside of Christ, does not acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but man, he shares your political platform one to one. You have more in common with the man or woman who proclaims Jesus as Lord than you do with the man or woman who agrees with you on how to address immigration. Or the man or woman who, who, who thinks what you think about free market capitalism or social welfare. Those things pale in comparison to this great political statement, Jesus is Lord. And if you believe that, and you submit to his lordship like I do, we're one. And we'll figure out that immigration stuff or that social welfare stuff. But if you believe that Jesus is Lord, and if you're marching under his flag, and if you take orders from the same captain that I take orders from... Man, we're one. If your citizenship is in heaven, if my citizenship is in heaven, there's a profound sense of unity and solidarity Mm. between those who share that citizenship. Well, that's the 
the first image that Paul uses. He wants these Ephesians to think of themselves as citizens of a new kingdom of the same kingdom. He wants them to get their identity right. You are citizens with the saints. But now secondly in our text, we see that these Gentiles and these Jews, they are members of the same family. Members of the same family. Where do I get that? Look again at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That phrase, members of the household of God. The image now goes from this sort of political uh, image now to one that is much more warm and much more intimate. You're members of the same family. You're members of the same household. This idea was already introduced in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 where the Ephesians are told that they've been predestined to adoption as sons. The Gentiles who were formerly strangers and aliens are now considered to be at home in God's family. The image is one of belonging. The image is one of place. Whatever might have been true of you in the world, whatever is true of you in your biological family, this is true of you now. In the church, you have a place. In God's family, you have a home. In God's family, you belong. Your identity is as a child of God. Not only are you fellow citizens, but you're members of the same family. It's hard to think of a more intimate image that Paul can use. I can only think of one image that's a little bit more intimate, and that's the image of marriage, which we're going to get to in a few weeks when we get to Ephesians chapter 5. He pulls that one out as well. But here he wants to tell them, you're not only fellow citizens, you're not only under the same Lord and King, but you have the same Father. You eat at the same dinner table. Uh, You share fellowship in the same family room. It's warm, it's intimate. So many people in the world today have the experience of being despised in the world or being abused in the world. Many people here perhaps know what it's like in their own families to be perhaps unloved or to be mistreated or to be abused. It's not so in the church. It's not so in the household of God. In the church, in Christ's body, in God's household where his children gather together, you belong. In God's household, you're home. In the church, you have a place. You're wanted here. You are cherished by God, and He will be to you a father if you are part of His body, the church. You might be an object of scorn and ridicule in your social circles. You might be unwanted and unloved in your family, but what Paul is telling the Ephesians is you are now members of the household of God, and here you have a place. Here you belong. Here you are one with God's family, and you have God as father. Several weeks ago, when we considered Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 and the statement there that Paul makes on being adopted, I read to you some quotes from a great Christian writer named J.I. Packer, and I uh, promoted his book, Knowing God. I still encourage you to read that book if you've not read it. In that book, J.I. Packer argues that the blessing of adoption is like the climax of the Bible. Uh, that, that the revelation that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God is like, like the pinnacle of divine revelation. Let me just read a few quotes from J.I. Packer and Knowing God on the subject of adoption, being part of God's family. Packer says this, What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel 
offers. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship, and He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. Packer goes on to say, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find how much he thinks of the thought of being God's child and having God as Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The revelation to the believer that God is his Father is in a sense the climax of the Bible. Packer pulls out the big guns. He says that a Christian's understanding of the faith cannot be better than his understanding of adoption. Why does he say that? Because this is supposed to be a controlling sort of image in terms of our sense of identity. And Paul gets at it here in Ephesians 2. You are to think of yourselves now. You Gentiles that were formerly without hope and without God in the world, now you're God's children. And now you're welcomed into the household of God. And there's a sense of belonging and a sense of place and a sense of home in the household of God. This is part of who they are as those who are in Christ. Paul wants them to get their identity right Citizens of a new kingdom, members of a new family. But now the third image in our text, they are part, Jew and Gentile, they are part of the same temple. Part of the same temple. Let's read verses 19 through 22 together. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Four things I want you to see here with respect to the church, to the Jews and Gentiles being the temple. First of all, notice the temple's foundation in verse 20. This temple, this structure is said to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The temple is understood to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles here are probably understood to be the twelve plus Paul. The prophets are probably not a reference to Old Testament prophets, but the prophets of the early church who were those who preached the word with power and with the spirit and with authority. Paul wants us to understand that the church is built on the foundation of apostolic authoritative teaching. It is the teaching of the New Testament, the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of the apostles and prophets that forms the foundation of the church. In in many ways, Paul is saying it is the Christian message. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this message that is proclaimed by the apostles and the prophets. That's your foundation. The teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Now notice, secondly... The temple's cornerstone. Verse 20 says, They're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then he says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What's meant here? The cornerstone in the first century would have been massive. Weighing many, 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 many tons. What a massive. It would have been the first stone to be laid. And it would have been the stone by which everything else was measured. And the stone by which all the other stones 
found their place. The first thing you would do in erecting a building is to fit that cornerstone. And that cornerstone was used to mark out the boundaries and the lines and the limit of every other stone that was laid. It was the singular reference point. Everything else found its place with reference to the cornerstone. Well, Paul, the image he's constructing for us is this building that has Christ as cornerstone, the first stone laid, the biggest stone laid, that sets the parameters and boundaries for everything else. And then this foundation of the apostles and prophets and their teaching concerning Christ that is then laid, sort of like the, the cement that is the foundation of the temple of the church. Now thirdly notice that in our text we have some building material. The temple's building material. We have the foundation. We have the cornerstone. Now verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together. So presumably parts being joined together. Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. These Gentiles, these Jews, they're understood to be building material. They're like stones, like bricks that are placed one alongside each other and they're fitted together. And through these different groups coming in and people being included in Christ and being built on this foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, the temple is being erected. I think it's legitimate to apply this to our church. When we gather together, People from different backgrounds, saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, now included and incorporated into one body, we're like stones that are gathering together. And the promise is this, the image is this, that as the the temple is being formed, as God's people, like living stones, are gathered together and built upon that foundation of the apostles and prophets and the Lord Jesus Christ, as they're built up into a temple, God promises to inhabit them. He promises to dwell in their midst. The church in the New Testament is understood to be the temple. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus to the woman at the well in John 4. She's all caught up in wondering where it is that God's supposed to be worshipped. Is it this mountain? Is it that mountain? Where does God dwell? And he says, woman, there is coming a day, quite soon, when true worshippers will not worship in this mountain or that mountain. They don't have to go down to Jerusalem and enter the, the tabernacle there, the temple there, they will worship God in spirit and truth. So that assemblies like ours meeting at 407 Peachtree Road in Winston-Salem, and assemblies meeting down the road and in different states and in different countries, when we gather together, the promise is this, God will dwell in our midst. When the temple forms, these stones coming together, God comes. Peter picks up this idea in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5. through 5. He says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, God's temple is not identified with a particular location, but it is identified with a particular people. God's new covenant people made up of disparate groups that are united in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's where God dwells. But now fourthly and finally, and I've already gotten a little bit ahead of myself here, I want you to see the temple's function. We've seen the foundation, we've seen the cornerstone, we've seen the building materials, now the temple's function. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
when the blocks are put together, built on the foundation, built on the cornerstone that is Christ, God comes and dwells by His Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons why we emphasize gathered worship services. This is one of the reasons why we emphasize the body gathering together. Because though it's true that God meets with people in the closet at home, individually, or on the road, or in the quiet time, there is this special sense in which He inhabits His people when they gather together as the church, as the the new temple in the new covenant, the gathering of God's people. The foundation is the apostles and prophets. The cornerstone is Christ. The individual people and groups, Jew and Gentile, understood to be building material, and together... They gather to form the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Well, in closing, and in anticipation of our celebration of communion this morning, I'd like to share three lessons for us this morning, three applications for us this morning. And I'd like you to apply, if you're a child of God, to apply each one of these applications individually to your own heart, but also to think of how they apply to us as a people, as a church, as a gathering of those who've been united and been made one in Christ. So first of all, first lesson, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you've believed on Him, repented of your sins, placed your faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, you ought to think of yourself as a citizen of the kingdom of God. You in this church who are in Christ, you are citizens of the same kingdom, this new kingdom with your brothers and sisters. You're a citizen with the saints. And those who are citizens in God's church, fellow citizens with one another, they have the same Lord. And they march by the same marching orders. And they have the same code of ethics. And they live by the same patterns and customs. And observe the same traditions. There's a common heritage. There's solidarity. There's unity. Citizens of the same kingdom. This new kingdom that Christ has ushered in. And brothers and sisters, our common citizenship is to be a tremendous source of unity with one another. We're to recognize we have the same Lord. We are members of the same kingdom, members of the same nation. Therefore, we can't divide. We have to be one. We have to stand beside one another, encouraging one another, helping one another because we serve the same national cause. We serve the same kingdom. We serve the same Lord. We are fellow citizens with one another. And in my mind, this ought to diminish, at least in terms of importance, many of those things with respect to our citizenship in our country that tend to divide us. We could have all sorts of different opinions about how to make sense of the health care system in the United States. Lots of differing opinions on how to do that. What's the best way to organize health care in our country? Not an unimportant issue and not something that Christians shouldn't think through. But we have to have a sense of proportion. We're citizens of a new kingdom. And recognizing that we have unity because we serve the same Lord and because we serve the same cause and because we're doing the same work in the world, that's far greater than those political things that could serve to divide us. We're citizens of the same kingdom and that should engender in us a sense of solidarity. Mm. We serve Christ together. We march under His banner. He is our captain. He is our king. And therefore we must stand united and help each other and encourage one another as those who are exiles away from home or seeking to serve a new kingdom. Secondly, second lesson for us. If you are in Christ, 
you ought to think of yourself as part of the family of God. If you are in Christ, this is part of your new identity. You are to think of yourself as a son or a daughter of God and a member of the family, a member of the household. I have seen this facet of the Christian message, this facet of the gospel, come home to the human heart with such profound brilliance and wonder and power. You ever meet someone who was unwanted in their family? Mm-hmm. Mistreated in their family? Someone who had a bad dad or a bad mom or someone who, who knew what it was like to go hungry or knew what it was like to be abused or knew what it was like to be unwanted? And then they learn that in the Christian faith, I'm a child of God. I'm wanted. God wants me to experience warmth and relationship and fellowship with Him. That's, that's a powerful truth in the heart of that individual who knows what it's like to be abused and to be unwanted and to be disenfranchised. Whatever might have been true of me, of my, my friends who really could not care less about me and the fraternity or the sorority, in Christ and the family of God, I have a place here. I have brothers and sisters who have a stake in my life, who care about me, who, who care about my well-being. And they want me to be united to them. And in this new family where God is our common father, where we have common brothers and sisters, unity prevails and joy prevails and warmth prevails and affection prevails. That's what's at the heart of this image. And brother and sister, it's, it's so important to our conception of our own identity as those who are in Christ to understand that we are children of God. And I would echo the point of Packer. Our understanding of the Christian faith cannot be greater than our understanding of what it means to be a child of God. So often we don't feel like children. So often, even as believers, we we look to God as a judge or someone who's far off from us or someone who's wagging his finger at us. And to those of us who maybe had abusive parents or people who, who looked down on us and mistreated us, it's very easy to see that finger in the face or to hear that tone of voice. Well, listen, in the family of God, it's completely different. God is a different father. Your brothers and sisters love you. And in the church, you have a place. You're home in the church. You're home in the family of God. You belong here. You belong among Christ's people. And because we have the same Father, because we in truth call each other brother and sister, this should engender unity in our assembly. We're not just like a family. In truth, we are a family. We are brothers and sisters. And God is our Father. Thirdly and finally, if you are in Christ, you ought to think of yourself as part of the temple of God. In this Ephesian context, as the Jews in the church, the Gentiles, these groups that were formerly hostile toward one another, as they come together now in the church, people gathered from every tribe, tongue, people, A nation, they come together and God is forming them into a place that he inhabits, a temple. He draws near by his spirit and he lives among them. Well, that was true for the Ephesians and it's true for us now. When God's people gather together from different backgrounds, different cultures, different social situations, they come together in the church and are made new in Christ. They're one new humanity and they are a temple in truth and God inhabits them by his spirit. As we gather together, we should have the expectation, the hope that God will come in power and that He will dwell among us. 
And again, I'll just say this is one of the reasons why we say community is not optional. You need brothers and sisters in your life. You need the church. Because God makes these special promises that in His church, He'll draw near. In His church, He'll dwell. There's this special presence of God that is found only among His people. In no place does God say the individual believer on his knees in his bedroom is considered the temple of God. This great superstructure built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. But when brothers and sisters from various backgrounds made new in Christ gather together, God will come and he'll disclose himself and he'll reveal himself and he'll inhabit them. It's a glorious thought. We should walk by faith and not by sight, brothers and sisters. I do believe on the basis of this text that God is here even now. That as we have gathered as men and women from different tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations, and as we've come together, God promises to draw near to us and to do things for us and to make His presence known in the context of His gathered people. We are a temple of God that He dwells by His Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you as you come to these services, as you gather with God's people, come with that sort of hope. Come with that sort of expectation. I'm going to meet God today. Teach that to your children. What do we believe is happening here when we gather together as God's people and we are united as His people, the two groups made into one? What's going on? We're going to meet God. And though you don't see Him with physical eyes, we're meeting Him by faith. And my son, my daughter, I can't expect that you would understand that unless you're given eyes of faith. You need to pray that you will be saved, that you'll come to Christ, and you will know what it's like to meet with God in the context of the church. You will know what it's like to meet God in the context of gathered worship. You will know what it's like to know the presence of God dwelling in His temple, the new covenant church. Isn't the church a glorious thing? A new nation, a new kingdom, a new household. A temple where God himself dwells. It's a glorious hope that we have. A glorious identity that we've been given as God's people. But now I want to say to those of you who are outside of Christ, you don't have this identity. You don't have this hope. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a citizen of Christ's kingdom. You are not a member of God's family. And you don't come here in the context of these services expecting that you're going to meet with God because you're not part of His his temple. But all of that, the wonder of what it is to be the church, the wonder of what it is to be Christ, is available to you. Through what Christ has done on the cross, by His blood, through His flesh, if you would come to Him in repentance and faith, you could be included into this glorious body, the church. And you will find that you'll have new brothers and sisters And you will have God as Father. And you'll have your sins forgiven. And you'll be incorporated into a a community like this where you are truly one with others. Listen, the more I learn about the world, and the more I see in men and women, I've never been more convinced of the Christian message. Men and women are fundamentally sinful. They're born in trespasses and sins. The world is a wicked place. Christ's church is completely different. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll know what it is to have peace preached to you and to be united with men and women from completely different backgrounds who are nothing like you and they'll be your brothers and sisters and God will be your Father. This hope, this image that Paul is holding out is available to each and every one of us this morning. 
If you come to Christ in repentance and faith and are united to Him, all of this can be made yours. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. I'm going to close in prayer. Zach will come and lead us in song, and then I'll come and administer the elements. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what you have done in Christ is in every way wonderful to us. That each individual human heart here can experience the forgiveness of sins, redemption, the gift of the Holy Spirit, adoption as sons and daughters, to know what it is to be made alive in Christ. That is the hope of every heart here who believes in the Lord Jesus. But you have made the cross to be so much bigger than that, that it actually inaugurates a new family and a new community of people who are marked by unity and oneness. We thank you that you have done this. And Lord, we do pray that each and every one in this room would be included into that community this morning. Lord, help us as we sing together now songs that that emphasize the unity that we share with one another and our common allegiance to Christ. And as we gather around the communion table and celebrate the communion that we have horizontally one to another and vertically to our God, may you draw near and make your presence known to us by your Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Zach will now lead us in song.